You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, (laughs) and you listen. I think that's a pretty good solid intro. I mean, that's what I've been doing that the past few times. I think I'm just going to settle on that for a while. (laughs) And maybe not comment on it on every episode. (laughs) Yeah, well, from here out, I think I'm just going to leave it at that, and then we'll kind of dig in. So um, It's not like we're self-conscious at all. (laughs) Uh, I, I tend to think of it as self-aware, um, oh, okay. more self, self-effacing rather, yeah, well, um, <laughs> a little bit more, <laughs> I guess it's better than, better than self-aggrandizing, I suppose. Uh, uh, we got enough of those people running around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretending to be ministers. But anyway, that being said, we should talk about the Bible and not that. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots fired. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> I didn't name anyone. I just said they're out there. Yeah, but the problem is I know exactly who you're talking about. I uh, mean... <laughs> you might know a few people I might be talking about, but we should, we should not make the show about that. Not this series. We're still talking about the Bible, and that's worked out pretty well for us so far. Yeah, I was looking. It was like 2018 when we launched. Is that crazy? Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Who knew we had this kind of commitment and stamina in us? <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, we're coming up on the coming up on three years in October. So we're only like two months out from that. Yeah, just just wild. But okay, like you said, we're in the Bible. We're still in Second Samuel. We're going to continue to be there for a while. Uh, we started on chapter sixteen uh, last week, and we did. Uh, we talked about the first verse because Ziva had showed up with. Um, Food, food stuff. That's what he came. He came with bread and donkeys to ride and wine and all of this. And so uh, that's kind of where we left off. And um, we talked a little bit about how that mirrors um, the uh, the gifts that Abigail brought to David whenever um, he was threatening to kill all of Nabal's um, camp and clan. But that seems to be pretty standard travel fare food. I mean, this is road food for for Bible times. And so we're going to pick up in um, verse two, and we're going to talk about what's going on here. And we need to remember also, David is fleeing Jerusalem. Uh, Absalom's come in. He's uh, taken over the city. David has chosen to leave Jerusalem because if he would have stayed, he would have subjected the entire city to siege warfare. And that's not a good thing. Nobody wants their people to have to endure that. So he, he made the decision that it was better just to take his court, take a few friends, some trusted warriors, get out of town, and then regroup and figure out how to approach this problem. So picking up in uh, verse 2, it says, And the king said to Ziva, Why have you brought these? Ziva answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread, the summer fruit, the young men... Uh, and the summer fruit, the young men to eat, and wine for the faint in the week in the wilderness to drink. So, classic non-answer answer. I mean, Ziva's not telling David anything he doesn't know. I mean, what else are you going to do with this stuff? Of course, this is what he's going to do. But I think we're all smart enough to know that David isn't asking what he's asking. Why he wants to know what Ziva's motivation is. And we got to remember who Ziva is. Ziva is Mephibosheth's servant. Ziva was commanded by David to take over and um, be the steward of Mephibosheth's estates after Mephibosheth was found and brought into David's court. And so Ziva had kind of gone through a little bit of a demotion because now instead of being the ruler of this, the estates that used to belong to Saul, now he's just a servant to this lame guy who's not going to be able to give him any kind of promotion. There's no um, advancement here. And Ziva had been pretty important. Uh, so we, we don't know a whole, I mean, we don't know a whole lot what's going on between the time that that demotion was made and now, but now Ziva's showing up and there is a presumptuous, a presumption 
that Ziva would be bringing things not on his own behalf, but on Mephibosheth's behalf, because all of what Ziva has actually belongs to Mephibosheth. And mm -hmm. so David, you know, he presses harder and he says, and the king says, where is the, your master's son? Ziva said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So when David asked, where's your master's son? He's actually referring to Saul. Saul was Ziva's master. But remember in Bible times, even though Saul was his, his grandfather, that father-son relationship can encompass any of the male patriarchs and any of the male descendants in relationship to each other. So it's not necessarily a direct father. It can be a grandfather, great-great-grandfather, whatever. So he's asking, where is Mephibosheth? He doesn't call him by name. And then Ziva gives this, this answer that we don't know if it's the truth or not. He actually says that Mephibosheth is plotting to take the throne, that, that somehow Absalom's um, overthrow of David is actually going to result in Saul's family reclaiming the throne. And the, the thing is, this doesn't make any sense because when Mephibosheth was introduced to David, Ziba was Mephibosheth's biggest um, protector. He was a big advocate. And one, mm -hmm. of, yeah, one of the things that Ziba did was to say, hey, look, the guy's crippled. He, he can't walk. There's a problem here physically, and this is going to prevent him from becoming king. He is completely disqualified, so you don't have to worry about him. He's not a threat to you. And now Ziva has completely done an about-face and seems to completely, completely forgotten or is deliberately overlooking the fact that Mephibosheth cannot rule as king because he has this physical disfigurement. Yeah, well, and something else, too, I, I just want to— backtrack to uh real quick when david asked where's where's your master's son and and doesn't call him by name mm -hmm. um you know i kind of wonder about how the relationship had been going because you know how sometimes you have people at work <laughs> <laughs> or or you know or maybe your child has been behaving oddly and you say you know you might say to your spouse where's your child mm -hmm. or or where's your youngest child? Where's your oldest child? Or, or the person who's always calling in calls in again, and you say, hey, where's the, where's the boy wonder? Right. You know, <laughs> or something of that nature. So I'm kind of wondering if, you know, <laughs> with the relationship that had been going on between David and Mephibosheth, like what that had looked like. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that, that kind of struck me with the way he's like, where's... Where's that guy who's always around you, you know? You, oh, that's a good question because, you know, we talked about earlier, was Mephibosheth, you know, really the honored guest at the table or was he a political prisoner? And, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us either way. Either way, it works out well for David and it still looks like he's doing the right thing. So, sure, you know, and Mephibosheth could have grown to resent it. We don't know. Uh, I, I don't think so because of what happens down the line. And so at this point, though, we need to remember the writer's not giving anything away. So one of the hard things we have to do as readers is not get ahead of the story and, and not bring in the information that we know about what happens next. And at least not until we've kind of processed it like it would have been presented to the original audience. So when we got Ziva here, we should be going, wait a minute, what's happening? Is Ziva to be trusted? Can, can we believe what he's saying? Is there a hidden agenda going on? And, you know, this is politics. As much as we like to separate religion and politics in our culture, at least, at least attempt to, there is none in the Bible times. It all goes together. I don't think there's any today, but that's a whole other show. And so... Um, well, actually... Oh my gosh! Talk, talk, talking about religion and politics, actually, I, I can't remember the name of the guest who was on uh, the Naked Bible podcast recently, um, but he um, he was talking about the, the problem uh, was religion and politics. They were, they got on that topic somehow, and he said the problem is a lot of times we look at our religion as the cog in our larger political wheel, as opposed to looking at religion as the you know 
our, our religion as the thing we should be embracing and 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 making the priority. Um, oh yeah, he goes that's he goes that's not just America. He said that you know because this guy was from from Australia, and uh, he said that you know that's Australia, that's America, that's you know anywhere in the world you look, uh, you've got people who who use religion as just it's a you know just just a, a small component to a larger political complex. So anyway, um, that's paraphrasing. Him. He didn't <laughs> use those exact words, but well, um, you should go check that out. I'll, I'll find the episode number and we can put it in the links. Yeah. I, and you know, and, that, and that's a complex uh, equation to try to work out. So um, thankfully I don't have to do it. So, um, it, you know, other than, than voting, but that's, like I said, another, uh, <laughs> another topic. But the question here really is, why is Ziva doing this? What's the what's the purpose and the function of this? Because he had been Saul's servant. He did seem to be loyal to Jonathan and Mephibosheth. And so to have this about face. Now, the the reason and the advantage of doing this, uh, of throwing Mephibosheth under the yet-to-be-invented bus, so to speak, is revealed in verse 4. It says, Then the king said to Ziva, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziva said, I pay homage to let me find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So Ziva's given, well, Mephibosheth was given what was Ziva's, and now Ziva's given what's Mephibosheth. And, you know, so there's this financial benefit. I mean, that's immediately apparent because, you know, Saul had private lands. This is how uh, Mephibosheth was being supported. He was getting the income he needed to properly support himself. Living in a king's court in any day and age, was never cheap. There were certain expenses, you were certain uh, looks that you were supposed to upkeep and, and various um, issues that had to be addressed with you know, following royal protocol. It cost mm. money. And so now Ziva is going to receive all that, but he's not just getting a financial benefit. I mean, this is status for his family. It's a status that Mephibosheth is never going to be able to confer on him. He, uh, Mephibosheth's never going to bring him to a place of, uh, you know, social heights and, and uh, this, this um, seniority or, or notoriety that, that he could get being connected to David versus Mephibosheth. And so this is kind of removing him, you're removing that obstacle between David and Ziva. It's also a legacy for his son, because we got to remember the, the ownership of property within Israel being able to keep it within a family, being able to pass it down to your children. This is how you maintained your memory. This is how you had a memorial. And in some circles of Judaism, this is how you maintained your immortality. And so you needed to have that land in order to make sure that you were remembered uh, correctly. So one of the critiques that, that flows out of this, um, this whole instance towards David is the fact that he just immediately accepts Siva's word. He, he doesn't send anyone to investigate. This is against Torah law. He doesn't have two witnesses, again, against Torah law. So the fact that he just says, oh, wait a minute, this is how things are, so this is how I'm going to behave, has drawn some fire from, from critics. Um, and, and that makes some sense. The thing is, what we've got to remember, and I'm not trying to excuse David's behavior. There's a lot of David's behavior that's inexcusable. But this is literally a life and death situation. David has so much on his plate right now. I mean, he's got people traveling with him out of Jerusalem, men, women, and children, trying to get them out of the city, trying to keep his son from killing both himself and those he took with him. And, you know, He's having to figure out what's going on here. What is God up to that he would allow David to be removed from the throne? So there's the emotional, you know, it's just when you're under stress and you've got a lot of things going on, I think most of us kind of get to that point. It's like, I'm just going to go with what I know and just keep moving because you just can't process another bit of information. And I think we need to allow David to be that human. But there's also some strategic things at play. If David had accepted these things from Ziva, then he would have been accepting stolen property. 
that poses another moral issue for the king that he would accept stolen property, possibly even bigger than condemning Mephibosheth without any further investigation. Ziva probably arrived with his 15 sons. We know that that's the right number from a previous story and his 20 servants. That's a pretty good fighting squad right there. And so Mm -hmm. adding them to his camp, even if just temporarily until he finds out the truth, provides him with a logistical and tactical advantage that he just simply could not have from Mephibosheth alone. So he needs Ziva to be on his team at least for a moment. But this is where we see that shift. Remember we, earlier we talked about how when David went into exile, when David's in the wilderness, this is the David we love. And during those few moments, where, or at least it seems like a few moments in the text, because it's just a matter of a few verses, where he has no hope, he has no real backing, he doesn't have a plan, that's where we love David the most. That's our psalmist. That's the guy who, who asks God for help. He relies on God. David, who has a plan, man, this is where he's the political mover and shaker. This is the guy who's playing all the games. He is the warlord who knows how to turn every crisis into an opportunity. And so the question really becomes, how big are these shifts? And how thorough and how, uh, how all-encompassing are these shifts? Is there room for the warrior king and the psalmist in one person? Do we have to pick one or the other? Because I think a lot of people think it's an either-or equation. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it is. I think it's more of a, a both-and. Because, I mean, really, isn't this the question for most believers? How do we be who we are at the most fundamental level, who God created us to be, and still bring that into alignment with God's will in a way that brings him glory? And, you know, that, that's not an easy thing. I, I don't think for any of us that's an easy thing. I think there's always going to be some aspect of who we are woven deeply into our personality and, you know, who we are as a person that is counter to God's commands. Or maybe it's not 100% counter, it's just, it becomes counter to God's commands and God's will when it's, when it's out of balance. Because, excuse me, when David was chosen as king, one of the things that qualified him is the fact that he is a giant killer. It's the fact that he is capable of being that warrior king. That's who the nation needed. They needed a man who was not afraid to be a man of blood because there's so much warfare around at this time. And warfare was brutal at this point in time. And so to have a king who was weak would have actually crippled the nation. So the fact that we've got this guy who can fight like this, who is very smart, he's very politically savvy, which is also another element we need in this king, shouldn't surprise us. But we, we, we don't like it when he crosses those lines. And I don't think we should. But we shouldn't forget that this is, this is an aspect of David that is only wrong when it is out of balance. And I think that we as Christians, we should be able to relate to that. I've been talking too much. You're going to talk more. So. Well, sorry, I don't have anything to add right now. I'm... I would just be uh, <laughs> talking about, I would probably just be repeating whatever you were just saying. So, Okay, fine. Uh, but anyway, I, I just, I, I think one of the things that we do as Christians is we simplify faith for everybody but ourselves. And for everybody but us, it's a black and white issue. For us, it's shades of gray. Um, but, you know, for our neighbor, the guy who cut us off on the highway, you know, the, the, those people, it should be black and white and they should know better. Us, you know, we have terms and conditions that we want God to sign off on. And, you know, I don't see any reason why David is any different. And I think the other thing we should keep in mind is God and Jesus are both described as warrior kings. So to, to have this element of David being on display isn't really uh, all that shocking. Again, it's all about bringing that into alignment with God's will. So. Mm-hmm. 
uh, verse 5. When David came to Baharim, they came and came, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. So Baharim is a, um, or Baharim is a city that's in the Benjaminite territory. And it makes sense because Shimei's part of Saul's family, so he's going to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And we need to remember, too, Jerusalem was chosen because it was at the point where Benjamin and Judah came together. It was shared territory. Both tribes had part in the city. So it was very appropriate that David chose that as his location to rule because you know, it's kind of a, the symbolic reconciliation of these two tribes, uh, Saul's tribe and David's tribe. So we, we learn later that David does have supporters in Baharim. Uh, Shimei's just not one of them. But the difference between Shimei and, and Ziva is Ziva was a servant for the house of Saul. Shimei is from the house of Saul. This means he's a relative. I mean, he might be a cousin, an uncle, a second cousin. We don't know. We just know he is from the house. So probably a closer relationship, maybe even brother. And so, you know, he's mad. He's come out. He's going to confront David. And what we need to remember is that cursing a king is a serious matter. Mm-hmm. This is not like today. I know we curse political leaders all the time. Get on Facebook and you're going to see people cursing presidents, past, future, present, whatever, telling you why they're horrible people, accusing them of being the Antichrist. But, um, oh, well, yeah, I mean, well, it, I mean, it used to be like a capital offense to, to even uh, satirize uh, political leaders. I mean, back in <laughs> ancient times, but now we have, I mean, an entire industries <laughs> who are, who are devoted towards satire towards whatever political leader, regardless of their party, they're going to get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we do remember now we see our leadership, you know, they're, they're just people, you know, they're, they're just folks and maybe they caught a break. Maybe they had the mind for politics, maybe whatever, you know, they have the right connections of the family. Back at this point, we have to remember the kings were representatives of the gods. Uh, if they were not considered to be direct descendants of the bo- of the gods or embodiments of the gods, so to mm-hmm. curse a king was to curse God or the gods. Mm-hmm. So this is the reason why it's such a serious offense. It's not just because they were trying to be despots and and control, but there was this theological motiva- motivation behind it, and not just in other cultures that surrounded Israel. But within Israel itself, because David is God's anointed, he still represents God. He's still acting on God's behalf. Now, and we should also remember, he's, he and his family have been adopted into the family of God. That was chapter 7. Yeah, and, and we, tend to, we tend to forget um, there are, I mean, and of course, a lot of this is we just don't review this stuff enough. I mean, we, sh- we should be diving into it more often. But we we tend to forget that um, there were people from the house of Saul. You know, it, uh, we tend to we tend to teach it like, oh well, Saul died, and then everything was a okay with with that part of things, and then there was this little skirmish between David and his sons. Yeah, you know it, and we, and we and the the other thing is we make it sound seamless. <laughs> the way it's often taught, well, the way it's often taught, it's it yeah, it makes it sound like everybody was on board with David as king, mm-hmm. and then. Then there was this this little family skirmish that happened to result in like you know a few deaths, right? You know, <laughs> and when we downplay it, but this is serious. I mean, David is moving and uh, basically mobilizing and recruiting and moving an army around. Yeah, and, and we and we we do that because we forget these are people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we we think that for some reason, and even though we may intellectually on one level say. Well, I know this is history. I believe the Bible teaches the history of what actually happened. For some reason, these people don't belong in earthly history, in world history. They, they belong to a separate sacred history that doesn't have the same rules. And the people who, who are involved in it have this certain level of holiness instead of being these complex beings just like we are. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there is, and this is going to come out even further as we go on, that, that this divide 
between David supporters and Saul supporters is part of the this, uh, factors that David has to take into consideration while he's he's making these moves because he's got to he's got to be very careful in what he does because he doesn't want to incite a further uprising of these Benjaminites who think that David has done something horrible. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, one final point about cursing the king, uh, and I'll just throw this out there and people can ponder it and take it for what they will. In Exodus twenty two twenty eight, it specifically says, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So mm -hmm. how much we should take that into consideration for today? Um, like I said, I'll let people ponder that one, but you know, all scripture is useful and moving on. Verse six. Well, uh, okay. So, uh, hold on. Verse six. Are we still on, uh, what's this cat's name? Uh, Shimmy. Yeah. Let's, yeah, get to the end. Let's get to the end of that. And then I have something I want to mention on those. Okay. So verse six, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the mighty men were on the right hand and on his left. So now Bergen sees this throwing stones as a symbolic stoning of the king. And obviously, you know, David has done several things worthy of stoning. We've talked about that. That's not anything that's news to anyone. But right. when I look at this, I tie it back to a different story. And so when I think of David and stones, the story I think of is obviously David and Goliath. And so, because we have these really interesting parallels going on here, because we have David in both stories, who is king, but not king, because with the Goliath mm -hmm. story, he'd already been anointed, but Saul's on the throne. Now he's, he's been king, he's ruled in Jerusalem, but Absalom has taken his place as king. Matter of fact, David, if you remember back a few verses, he calls Absalom the king. And so um, Goliath came out to curse David. That's 1 Samuel 17, 43. And of course, Shimei here, he's coming out to curse David. Um, David threw the stones at Goliath and Shimei's throwing the stones at David. And so David's actually kind of being recast as this unconquerable giant because the stones aren't really doing any damage. Now, if we look ahead uh, in the story, we've got a few more connections uh, that I'll just point them out now so people can be listening to them. We had the servants of Saul are the ones cowering before Goliath. And when we have the servants of David, who they're actually going to want to take on Shimei, David says, uh, David does cut off Goliath's head. Abishai is going to pipe up and he wants to cut off Shimei's head. That's what he, he asked to do. Goliath calls David a dog. Abishai calls Shimei a dead dog. And so, you know, we've got these, these connections that very firmly tie the stories together. This is, again, something I'm seeing. I'm not finding any other commentator bringing this up. So y'all take this for what it's worth. And so that's, those are the things we want to look for as we move forward, because I, I want to um, move further into the story. And I think you're going to, it's going to become obvious why I'm seeing these. So verse seven, and Shimmy said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Verse eight. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. So first off, Shimmy's curses are um, based on something that's completely not true. Uh, he calls uh, David a worthless man. That is that sense of Liel that we've talked about in previous um, mm -hmm. uh, episodes. Now, we know, we just, we just said it, David has been adopted into the family of God. He's not a son of Leal, he's a son of God. And Leal, obviously, for those who haven't listened before, um, this is um, the personification or the personal name of evil in the Old Testament, not Satan. So this idea that David is a son of this evil being uh, this other entity aside from God, obviously we know that's not true. Uh, we we learn that he's misread the entire situation. He he claims that David's guilty of killing Saul and killing Saul's son. We know that's not true because David has repeatedly refused to kill Saul. 
Uh, he says that he's guilty of usurping the throne and that it didn't belong to him. Well, we know that's not true. And so we, as readers of Samuel, might be tempted to think this guy's just lying. And we've got to remember a few things about this day and time. News did not move quickly, not as quickly as it does today. It's not easy to verify news at this point in time. It's all transmitted by word of mouth. Salacious stories travel faster and they have a longer shelf life than boring facts. And so we've got to keep that into account. I mean, because a lot of, you know, a lot of the way we perceive information is being transmitted, even in my generation, where the internet was something that kind of came into being when I was in college, or, you know, at least I started having access to, that whole way of transmitting information is so new to the human culture. And, mm-hmm. I, and when I was reading this, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking back about, you're going to love this example, the wonderful stories about rock bands in the 80s and 90s. I knew exactly where you <laughs> Yeah, all the things that we heard about Ozzy Osbourne and Marilyn Manson and things of that nature. Because, I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, the the speed of information. And, you know, for centuries, it was the fastest you could go was the speed of a horse. Or maybe if you had carrier pigeons, you might get a little faster. Um, But those were very select. And then even with broadcast television, I mean, that was very selective. Mm -hmm. You, You still have information traveling faster, but, man. It just, yeah, the internet has really changed how people communicate. It, it, it has, and, and we can verify, and we've got phones that record things instantly and are uploaded, and so we can see, did did Ozzy really bite the head off of a bat? You know, what, what's the deal? Did Jen's, uh, Gene Simmons actually have a cow tongue transplanted into his mouth? I, the, these things are things that live in the urban legend because there's no there there is no way to verify and there's no way to to disprove them either um by the way all my research on ozzy has said that he did bite the head off the bat but he thought it was a fake bat when he did it he did not mean to hurt a real bat so anyway uh, <laughs> that's uh i happened to stumble across that one because i'm like what what news do we have on these stories today? You know, what do these people who live, you know, had to live through these rumors have to say about them now? Well, yeah, but and of course, I I don't even know if Ozzy's the most reliable source <laughs> right. on himself these days. Um, so, um, that yeah, that's uh, <laughs> he. That's a fascinating um, study in what can happen with too many drugs. But anyway. Uh, and that's probably the least of his problems, honestly. But well, we weren't going to go there. But um, but I, I think that one of the things that this does really reinforce is that idea that not everybody in the kingdom is convinced that David is the rightful king. Um, and not everybody believed that God was the one who put David on the throne. So, you know, Shimei is crediting God with David's removal from the throne which we know that is correct. That part of what Shimmy's saying is right because we have this story earlier with David and Bathsheba where Nathan, the prophet, says that this is what God's going to do. However, Shimmy gets the reasoning wrong. He only gets a little bit of the story right. And so he's either ignorant of what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah or the abuse and violence against women isn't as important to him as the fact that Saul had been displaced. And, you know, and either one could be a, a motivating factor for him because Shimmy's personally invested in the success of Saul. I mean, he, he's family. And if your family's doing well, typically you're doing well. At least you're doing better. You have more chance of doing better if your family's doing well. And so... The the idea that Shimmy would be more focused on Saul isn't too far-fetched, especially when you factor in the fact that the Christian culture and the religious culture has this tendency to downplay or ignore the abuse of women by leadership. And so, you know, this isn't new to us. So even if right. even if Shimmy did know, 
he doesn't care. There's a possibility he didn't, but if he did, it, he doesn't even factor that into his reasoning. So I, I would be, I would love to know if he knew. I, I would, that, that's the question I have for this particular passage. And so, um, you know, I think that the big lesson here is we have to be careful when we personalize things. Shimmy was personally invested. Shimmy believed that Saul was the right king because it benefited him. We need to be careful not to do that. We need to be careful that when God is doing something, we're okay with what he's doing and not ascribe evil motives or evil machinations to how things turn out. And so, uh, you know, I just, I thought that was a real good illustration of of the caution that we need to exercise as believers. So verse nine, then Abishai, the son of Zariah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. So again, we have those connections back to Goliath, the dead dog and taking off the head. And I think we need to uh, pay attention to the other clues that we're getting here. Once again, we're being reminded that Abishai is the son of Zuria. Zuria is David's sister. This is not uh, David's brother. David's, David's sister's kids are the ones supporting David. This is really interesting to me in the light of the fact all of this with Absalom started because Absalom is avenging his sister. So it makes me think that David and his sister had some kind of great relationship that he didn't have with his brothers if her sons are willing to fight on his behalf. And, you know, the fact that David was so mad at Absalom, maybe he should, shouldn't have been from the aspect that he might have understood because he also had a good relationship with his sister like Absalom did with Tamar. That's speculation, but I think mm -hmm. we've got some circumstantial evidence because none of David's brother's sons show up in David's army. It's just his sister. So the other thing to remember here, too, is who Abishai is. Uh, the first time we met Abishai is in 1 Samuel 26, 8. And he was one of those who was eager to kill Saul when David found Saul and, um, and Abner asleep. And mm -hmm. so it's fitting that he's with David here in this moment when Shimei's coming out to curse David for killing Saul and killing his sons because Abishai knows the truth. He knows that David argued to spare Saul's life. He, he knows how just completely erroneous Shimmy's cursing is. And so it, it's good to have him here to back up the, the validity of David's, you know, what we've been told about David before. And also when we remember that he was there and he saw David arguing that Saul would be saved, this further gives him reason for this kind of outrage that somebody would say these lies about the man he's serving, about the king he's serving. And the, the, the fun thing about Abishai, well, I say the fun thing. Abishai is interesting in that every time you see him, he just wants to kill someone. That, that's like his go-to response. I mean, and it's, it's revealing about the family David came from that his nephews, it's not just David, his nephews, because you remember, the rest of his army uh, is led by his nephews. They're just itching to take people out. I mean, this is not like sophisticated European royalty. This is redneck royalty. <laughs> I mean, this is um, the kind of families that, like, my husband might have come from. You know, we're just going to fight because it's a fun thing to do. And so um, I, I think I, I kind of get the personality because of my exposure to, to Ty's family. Um, he doesn't listen to this, so he's never going to know that I said these things. Uh, so anyway, but verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, you son of Zaria? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who shall say, why have you done so? So we've got this very clear reversal from the Goliath story. Uh, the reversal being that when Goliath cursed Israel, cursed the king, cursed the people serving Saul, David was offended. He was outraged that nobody stood up and said, you don't get to do this. Here he's, he's letting it go. He, he, his response is, is just 
so almost out of character for David. Well, this guy's cursing David, not God. There you go. That that's it exactly. I mean, if if you want to get right down to it, and so and a couple of things that this kind of reminds me of is um, is it Peter who asks to take uh, take the the people out mm-hmm. and, and have the tares and the wheat. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of that, and then it kind of reminds me of like an opposite of when the the demons are yelling after Jesus, saying. <laughs> Say saying that he's the son of God, and there and Jesus is like, no, be quiet. And here you have someone who's yelling true things, being told to be quiet, and then someone who's yelling curses and lies, being told that they can speak. And it's it's to me that seems like a really awkward juxtaposition of events. I hadn't put those together, but I mean, yeah, it makes sense. And and you, that's the thing you do see a lot of those reversals between how David handles something and how Jesus would handle something. Or, mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's very important when we remember that both David and Jesus are the messiahs, but we have one who is just a guy and the other who is God incarnate. And so that's the difference. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have this, um, the story of David. So we can see that we're, no matter how great the king is, because David is the celebrated king. He is the one who ushers in the golden era of Israel. And mm-hmm. he's not there. He, he's not going to be somebody who can uphold the standard the way it should be. And so, you know, that alone is significant. And it should encourage us and humble us that we do have a Savior who is God incarnate, who is perfect and can uphold the sta- standard in a way that even the great David couldn't do. And so, um, you know, it's... This this situation here also, now that we're getting into it, also, you turn the other cheek. Because, you know, David is being very savvy here. It, it's not completely altruistic what he's doing. If David acts out, if he, if he punishes Shimmy with some kind of violence, then what he's running the risk of is sending the entire tribe of Judah over to Absalom and getting their support behind him. He cannot sure. afford that. Benjamin is in Jerusalem. Benjamin is in the surrounding territories, just like Judah is. And it looks like from all the, the evidence that Benjamin is the primary tribe that has problems with David being king. Judah is behind David at this point. That's the only, um, we don't have any indication that they, um, that, they, that they were any wavering there. And so the idea that that any kind of, of um, I'm trying to think of the word here, if, if he provokes anyone from the tribe of Benjamin, we know what happens. And we know what happens because we go right back to Judges, we go right back to the Levite and the concubine. And when somebody attacks another person from the tribe of Benjamin, all of Benjamin ri- uh, rises up. And they go in headlong into war to the point that they almost wipe themselves out at the end of the book of Judges. So David is actually making a very calculated stance not to have this group of warriors because they were a great um, fighting force within the, within the nation. And he's, he's not going to invite that kind of trouble in. So not only is this very gracious uh, on David's part, it's also very, very smart. And so, you know, with David, that's always the question, how much of it's political and how much of it is is him actually doing the right thing? So verse 11, and when David said to Abishai and all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this Benjaminite, leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him. So David tells the servants, you know, hey, my son's trying to kill me. We got bigger fish to fry. Who cares what this guy's doing? We've got to take care of Absalom first. The other thing he's saying is he's a Benjaminite. Um, the Benjaminites, they're still a small tribe. Is he really that big of a threat? Uh, they were killed. They were almost wiped out completely by Judah. They, they've just started to rebuild. They've only had a few generations, you know, and they were down to 600 men. So we've got, we've got to remember that, yes, you know, they've had some time to recover. 
but not as not that long. And so their numbers just are not as great as Judah's or any of the other tribes, particularly together. And so what David's saying is very astute politically, but he doesn't stop there. He says that God told Shimei to curse David. So, you know, David is showing a lot of the typical patterns of thought and the reactions of a person of faith in the midst of a crisis. You know, on one hand, you resist the evil that's coming against you and all the things that are going wrong. We saw that because David has his scheme in place. He's got spies back in Jerusalem at this point. Remember, he'd sent the priests back, their sons. He sent Hushai to be a counselor to, to Absalom undercover, the first uh, covert agent there. But on the other side of things, he, he realizes that God, God's still at work. God's still at play. And nothing's happening that God isn't in control of or that God couldn't stop at any given time. And David does know he's guilty. He understands that this is part of the consequences of what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Yes, Jimmy doesn't get the reasoning correct. He doesn't understand why this is happening. But he, you know, the underlying message is, is correct. David is a man of blood. And David has murdered people. It just wasn't who Shimei thought he, he had killed. And so the only hope of uh, restoration and reprieve really does come from God, not from people supporting David, not from people understanding David. It's got to be God who acts on David's behalf to make things right, because God's the one who put him in the situation. Right. So uh, verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look at the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me good for this cursing today. So very Saul-like speech. If we remember back in, in the first book of Samuel, whenever David and Saul had these confrontations, Saul asked, why do you repay you know, evil for good? So David actually reverses the speech a little bit, but he sounds very much like Saul. And, but his expectations are different. He's expecting good to come from evil. And so that's, that's the whole key, I think, with our faith is we, we should be anticipating good to come from evil. I mean, even if we want to you know, go as far as looking at the crucifixion, the crucifixion's evil, but the resurrection comes from it. Good always comes from evil if we remain faithful, if we keep doing what we know to do and we keep relying on God to, to be our defender and protector. Yeah, and rely on God to redeem the situation. Uh, as, as opposed to just resigning everything to chance. Well, and, and redeem the situation, not justify the situation. And, and because there's no justifying what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah. There, there, there's, right. there's just none. Does that mean it's beyond uh, redemption? Absolutely not. I mean, we, we've seen this. This has become a story that's become very pivotal within uh, Christian theology as a whole. And so that's part of the redemption. And, part, and we need to, to be celebrating the fact that God can redeem it. Does that mean that the story is less disturbing or something we can just, yeah, whatever, it's not that big of a deal? Absolutely not. We're supposed to be shaken by it. We're supposed to be disturbed by it. Not everything in the redemption process is pretty. But if you don't have the ugly, you're never going to appreciate the pretty. And so if you don't have the death, you don't appreciate the resurrection. If you don't have the sickness, you can't have the healing. It, it's the, you've got to have both parts. And you will never fully appreciate both parts unless you have them together, side by side, contrasted. And if you just have one, then, I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, there, there are churches out there, the only thing they focus on is the resurrection. And they have the lightest fluffiest, happiest theology in the world, but it doesn't hold up in those times of crisis. And then there's those churches out there that only focus on the crucifixion, and they only focus on the death, and they never get to move their people to hope. And you've got to have them together if you're going to experience and, and witness the power of what God's doing in this earth, which is this resurrection redemptive process where he takes all the ugly and the scary and the bad and moves it into something beautiful and something hopeful and something that, that is whole. And so um, 
you know, David shows us that God can take very flawed, very you know, broken people, sinful people, and he can move them from that place and turn them into something, someone who, who can serve God and, and praise God and can represent God well. And, you know, this is when we think of how David's remembered, it's typically not as the rapist, he's remembered as the psalmist. And because that's part of, the, again, that redemptive process. So um, anyway, went on a little bit of a rabbit trail there because <laughs> those, those are just my huge, huge things that I think we, we've got to keep those in, in, in balance and intention with each other. And I think we just, we as human beings, we, we don't like to use those things, balance and tension. We just want to fall off into ditches. It's so much easier. And so, um, now I've got to find out where I am with my notes. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so the, I think the... Did you find it there? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm back. So yeah, I think the big lesson here is David doesn't even waste time on a lie. I, he, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to justify himself. He just lets it go. And, you know, to even respond in anger or to respond in some kind of defense to Shimmy's word... It, in a lot of ways, would be validating them. And so by just letting it go, you know, David just kind of leaves Shimmy on the roadside throwing his fit because in the next verse, uh, it tells us that Shimmy goes up opposite of David and he starts kicking dust and he's hurling rocks and he's still cursing David. And, you know, unlike when David threw stones at Goliath, I mean, one stone, and it took Goliath out, you know, Shimmy is doing multiple stones, kicking the dirt, and nothing is hurting David. So verse 14, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and he refreshed himself. So Jordan represents the end of the uh, administrative land. This is where David's rule kind of ended, uh, at least officially. It's about a 3,700-foot trek through the wilderness and you know it's taken its toll i mean and this isn't just david and warriors and this isn't young david either this is older david and you know they're tired and not only are they tired from this this you know this long walk where they're carrying you know whatever they need to survive on their backs they they're emotionally tired they're they're mentally tired they're they're spiritually tired i mean every good thing they thought they had, had and, you know, they had to fight to get Jerusalem. They had to wage wars to have their home in that city to begin with. And I'm sure that once they got there, they just kind of breathed a sigh of relief and went, oh, we've arrived. And then to have that ripped out from underneath their feet had to be devastating. And so we're told that when they get to Jordan, they're going to refresh themselves. We're not told how they do that in the book of Samuel. We are told by tradition that it's around this time that David actually writes two psalms, and that's where we're gonna we're gonna actually pause in Second Samuel and move into those psalms uh, in a little bit, probably next week. But Psalms three and Psalms fifty five, and so these two psalms would have been one way if David did write them at this time would have been one way that he did refresh himself. But before we get there, and because we don't have a lot of time, it, it's fun to stop and look at another tradition. And again, as we like to emphasize, this is a tradition. This is not part of scripture. But one of the things that uh, the, the Gemara does, with the, which is a Jewish commentary on scripture, uh, is it likes to reframe all of these people from David's life and all of these events that are happening as great men of, 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 sorry, of Israel, great men and teachers of Israel. And they even managed to do this with Shimei. And they actually uh, teach that Shimei was one of David's rabbis, that he was the one of David's mentors and teachers. And that the reason why he was able to say these things about David is because he knew David's heart and he knew David's real desire was to kill Saul and to take the throne, even though he didn't actually carry through with it, which I found to be utterly fascinating 
given how many times uh, the the writers of the Talmud and these various um, Jewish articles go in defending David and to keep him from being uh, sinful in anything. So, but probably hmm. one of the most fascinating stories is in the Megillah, which uh, that's a commentary on the book of Esther because Purim, which is one of the big uh, celebrations in Judaism, uh, has a lot of tradition, a lot of custom around it. Uh, some that would just horrify a lot of Christians, uh, especially if you're like from the Southern Baptist background where you don't drink at all. They drink a lot. Um, and so there's mask involved in giving charity and uh, reading the story of Ruth. But it's the story of Ruth with a lot of extra detail. Uh, very fascinating. And again, tradition. Not Story of Ruth or story uh, Esther, of Esther? Esther. I don't know why I said Ruth. Esther, yes. I, I don't know either. Well, you know, a glitch in my brain. There's a lot going on over here in this part of Oklahoma. Let's just, okay. So anyway, but um, one of the stories that I found to be interesting, if you remember back with Saul, um, he was uh, told to kill all the Amalekites and to um, totally wipe out everyone. And of course he didn't. And he kept the best animals, but he also spared the life of King Agag. And when King Ag, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the tradition goes that when King Agag was not killed immediately, that he fathered the child. And this, this child became one of um, the people who eventually, through his bloodline, Haman, the Agite, was born. So there's this problem here, you know, within the tradition that if, if Saul had killed Agag like he was supposed to, then Haman wouldn't have been born, then the Jews would not have been persecuted, and Esther would not have had to perform this heroic act to save the nation. But the Megillah actually makes Shimei a counterpoint for David, uh, kind of like uh, Shimei becomes da basically David's Agag. And it they claim that because David did not kill Shimei for cursing him as the king of Israel, that Shimei later on gave uh, was the great-great-grandfather of Mordecai. And if Mordecai had never been born, then Haman would have never been provoked. And then the persecution of the Jews never would have happened, and Esther wouldn't have had to perform this great heroic act. So... Basically, Saul messed up by letting Agag live. David messes up by letting Shimei live. And these two descendants of these enemies of the, the respective kings collide in the book of Esther to create this, this moment in which the nation is almost destroyed. And so I, I thought this was really interesting that they paralleled the failures, quote unquote, of Saul and David to make this story a little bit more dramatic. And so I wanted to read a real quick, a real a quote from the Megillah. This is uh, 12b, verse 19. The family of Judah would say, I caused the birth of Mordecai as only, as only because David did not kill Shimei, the son of Gera. When he cursed him, it was possible for Mordecai to be born later from his descendants. And the family of Benjamin said in response, in the end, he came from me, as in fact, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. So I, I, I just, I, I don't put any credence in it, okay? I want to be very clear. I don't think this is necessarily what happened. But it was real, I thought it was really interesting that this is how they picked up on it. Now, um, again, because this is tradition, you've got lots of conflicting traditions uh, in uh Midbar Rabbah 19.1, it says that Mordecai is an example of God bringing something pure from something impure. So Mordecai would be the pure descendant of the impure Shemi. And then uh, there are some who expand this to say that David had a prophetic insight, that he, he saw Shemi and was able to see into the future and realize that Shemi's descendant Mordecai would be the one to save Israel. And this is why David saved, saved him. And he realized that bearing a personal insult in a moment was okay because it was going to, to be a greater good for the nation. Now, Barakot actually has uh, a further teaching that Shimei was Solomon's sage and teacher, and that he's the one that kept Solomon 
in check. And when Shimei dies, that's when Solomon goes on to, you know, have all the wives and build the temples for the Egyptian gods. Now, Rashi, which this is a great illustration of why Rashi's interesting. Rashi takes it even further. He says that Shimei was a member of the Sanhedrin and that because Shimei was one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, that this is what gave him the courage to, to curse David because only a great person would be brave enough or bold enough to curse a king. Now, the problem is we don't have any mention of the Sanhedrin until, oh, sometime during Josephus' day. And sure. so we don't know where that comes into play, you know, when the Sanhedrin was actually formed. Now, Rashi dates it all the way back to when Moses chose the 70 elders to help with the ruling of Israel. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about Rashi, and I, I think this is a good time to point this out, a lot of Jewish commentators take Rashi as the final authority. And so when they quote Rashi, they don't always cite Rashi. It's like he's supposed to be so well-known and so well-respected that this is just the way it is, you, that they don't actually need a source. So when you're studying Jewish sources, one of the things you want to take into account is where are they getting their information? Rashi has got some amazing insights. I do like a lot of his writings. It's at least thought-provoking. He's not always correct. And right. so, you know, you want to be careful not to just go, oh, okay, well, this is how a Jewish commentator interpreted this, so it's got to be right. You actually want to go back to the scripture. You want to go back to those historical documents. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so there's a balance because so many times the Jewish commentators do have good insights that we as Christians have neglected. So, you know, don't, don't just fall off into either one of those ditches. Hold those, those things in tension and balance. And so, because when I started reading and doing research, I came across so many um, commentators that, that repeated what Rashi had to say, but they did not cite him as the source. And so I, I needed to go back and find out where the source was. I always look for, or try to, um, well, I do look for them. I don't always find them. Those primary source materials, where did this view begin? How did it get started, and should we accept it as something valid and applicable, or do we just need to kind of smile at it and go, that's a fun story? Yeah, because there's, there's lots of those little traditions and, and stories out there. You just kind of go, well, that's, that's weird. <laughs> right. and, uh, you, and, and personally, I, I, I have an issue uh, you know, with the, the whole you know, David seeing in the future and all this, because it's like, no, these people were experiencing history probably oftentimes the same way we were. Right. And it, it's, you know, they have this kind of hope for a Messiah one day, but we don't really know what that looks like. And, you know, just, it, it's a very, you know, I, I, whenever, and I think I mentioned before, the, the way that makes the person seem most human is the way that I try to read the text. Yeah, I, and I think we should. I think it's exactly how we should look at it because, People are people, and, and if this book is supposed to be an example for us to follow, something to encourage and inspire us, if they're so holy that we can't even begin to, you know, touch their feet, then is it really any good for us? Does it really help us any? But right. if we can see real flesh and blood human beings wrestling with these issues, now it's something I can use, and it's something that can inspire me, and I can also find comfort in it to realize, yeah, they messed up too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that sounds like a, a good place to to end on for this week. Yeah, um, we'll pick up in so, Psalm three next week. So we're going to put Second Samuel on hold and jump into a Psalm for a little bit of a break. Sure. Well, I'll be looking forward to that, and hopefully everyone else is. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying the conversation. If you are, um, let us know. Uh, write us a review. Share us with a friend. Something like that. That helps us, uh, you know, get the word out for what we're doing. Um, helps get more people educated so we can stop believing really ridiculous <laughs> things about the Bible. Um, hopefully, I mean, that's that's our goal here, um, and I hope we're achieving that. Um, that being said, if the, you do uh, have anything you want to share with us, anything, you know, comments, even corrections, we're open mm -hmm. to those. Raven Creek SC on all the social media is where you can reach us. Send, a, send us a message um, or hit us up on the website, ravencreeksc.com, where you can find 
the show with show notes. Um, Some of uh, them. To most shows. <laughs> to, yeah, to most of our shows. Uh, we are getting the uh, the rest of them up. Um, and then uh, find other shows by uh, Raven Creek Social Club members, um, I guess. Uh, I don't know how we really... <laughs> do that but anyway we've got a group of people who uh we host their shows as well and we love them uh check out uh, commentarians with joe zaragoza i'm actually going to be on it uh this month i'm not sure if this episode airs before or after that uh, but uh, mickey and i are doing uh monuments men so that's gonna be a fun oh, one i haven't seen that one um oh it's uh yeah i, I actually it was uh, free to watch on imdb tv um, for a little while. So I think for us to, to rewatch it for the show, I think we might actually have to purchase it or rent it from Amazon. Um, uh, but I was really actually very pleased with it. I thought it was really well done. Nice. Um, it's, you know, there's some rough parts because it is a war movie, but, um, overall, I think, I think it was a, a well done show and, uh, going to have a good conversation about, you know, art and war and, and what it is we do, uh, and why we do those things. But, Anyway, um, so that one's going to be good. Um, also, go check out uh, Joshua Sherman uh, with uh, Tending Our Nets. Answers to Giants Questions with Chris Bather and TJ or Tim Stedman, um, our friends that are international members from down under. Um, Get to listen to the accent, if nothing else. Got, <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. And I've, they also have some some perspectives that uh, and ways of expressing things that are a little different than what you typically hear in a in Oklahoma or around the U S. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear it. It's a lot of fun. And then go check out, uh, change my mind with Luke T Harrington. Um, he's got an interesting show where he talks to people who have changed their minds about big things, small things, consequential things, and even things like the Oxford comma from time to time. <laughs> so, um, go check those out, fun shows and lots of good people that we love. And until then, I guess we'll see you next week and, uh, everyone have a good time. podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash raven creek sc as always thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week